Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. We are in the thick of it now. After our initial spat between Agamemnon and Achilles, and the mustering of the troops, unsuccessful though it may initially have been, we've gotten through the duel between Paris and Menelaus, as in, uh, conclusive as it turned out to be. Now we are actually into the fray. The fighting is in earnest. And here in Iliad 5, we get our first real major battle scene. And there are a lot of things that we need to sort of notice and take away from this passage, just to sort of set the tone for battle scenes to come. And because there are actually a lot of fairly unique things happening in this section that are really interesting and kind of striking, even amidst the other battle scenes that we're going to encounter. Um, First and foremost, let's stress, today is Diomedes' good day. Um, this happens fairly frequently in the Iliad. You will see multiple different heroes over the course of the epic poem sort of having a particularly good day, either because there's some god or goddess behind them, or they're motivated by especially powerful rage, as the case may be. Um, today is Diomedes' day. Now, Diomedes himself is not anything to really write home about, as Homeric heroes go. Like, don't get me wrong, he's pretty awesome. He definitely wrecks a lot of stuff in this chapter, and even does some damage to some gods, which we'll talk about. Um, but he's not like Odysseus, who is especially brilliant as a strategist or as a plotter. Uh, we don't have, like, major leadership potential like we do with Agamemnon. We don't have an, a special favoritism like Menelaus supposedly has with Ares, though we'll see there's some question about that. Um, and he doesn't have, like, Achilles or Ajax's outright strength and proficiency in battle. Like, he's a B-tier Homeric hero at the best. Um, but he has a really good day. Uh... It starts right at the beginning of Iliad 5. We get this stanza. Pallas Athena now gave to Diomedes Tydeus' son the strength and courage that would make him shine among the Greeks and win him glory. Starlight flowed from his helmet and shield as if Sirius had just risen from the sea before dawn and autumn, and that brightest of stars was blazing from his torso and face instead of the sky. So the reason why Diomedes is wrecking is because he has Athena on his side. Um, like, Athena empowers him. A little bit later, we get this description that Athena is, in fact, like, helping him in some supernatural ways. This is around line 140. It says, Go after the Trojans for all your worth, Diomedes. I have put into your heart your father's heroic temper, the fearless fighting spirit of Tydeus the horseman, Tydeus the shield. And I have removed the mist that has clouded your eyes so that now you can tell God from man. Do not fight with any immortal who might come and challenge you, except Aphrodite, daughter of Zeus. If she comes, you may wound her with bronze. So notice there are a couple of superpowers that Athena offers to Diomedes here. First, she has empowered him. He now has his father's heroic temper and fearlessness. It seems that Athena has, like, made him actually physically stronger here. Um, she also very explicitly says that she has removed the mist that clouded your eyes. Apparently, gods and mortals have been fighting on the battlefield pretty closely for a long time now. Um, but most mortals can't see the gods. They are disguised or deceived in some various ways. 
Now, admittedly, we've seen a couple of occasions where the mortals have recognized the gods. Achilles notices that it's Athena when Athena shows up to, like, convince him not to just kill Agamemnon during their debate. Um, Helen, weirdly enough, recognized Aphrodite when she showed up to coerce her into uh, spending the night with Paris. Like, Obviously, there have been a lot of gods hanging around in the battlefield causing havoc one way or another, um, but even in situations where it seems pretty dramatic, like Aphrodite helping Paris by snapping the chin strap in the duel, you know, Menelaus doesn't even see that. Apparently, it just seems to happen to him. Like, he knows that the gods are responsible. He is angry at Zeus for not helping him get the kill on Paris, but nonetheless, it's not you know, he doesn't see Aphrodite doing this. He doesn't see Zeus break his sword. All of this is apparently invisible to him, and Homer doesn't even narrate some of this stuff, even though it's fairly heavily implied. Um, now we understand why. Apparently there is this mist that is covering all the mortals' eyes, which Athena now removes. So Diomedes is going to actually see the battle as it's taking place, gods and mortals both. Um, but Notice there is a provision here. You do not attack gods and goddesses. Now that you have this power, now that you can in fact see them and recognize when gods are actually being helpful in combat, it's Diomedes' responsibility and also an important thing for his self-preservation that he not tangle with any of the gods. Except, of course, Aphrodite, because she's a wimp and doesn't belong in a fight, so if she in fact shows up, he can wound her with bronze. Um... Now, that's all the instruction that Athena gives, and she's, like, off to do other stuff. But this starts Diomedes' killing spree. Um, and it is pretty friggin' impressive here. Um, like, he was already doing some damage before he even gets the mist uh, removed from his eyes. Like, we get a long list of various people killing each other, and, you know, lots and lots of casualties to be reported here. Um, most of which are not all that impressive or noteworthy as far as Iliad kills are concerned. Um, the first one that I really want to focus on uh, is when Aeneas and Pandarus team up to try and take Diomedes down. Um, at this point, Pandarus has already shot Diomedes with an arrow, and Pandarus was convinced that this was going to like do it for Diomedes. Uh, but Diomedes has his chariot driver help him out, and like they draw the arrow through his shoulder. Um, yeah, this is kind of grotesque, but worth mentioning. Um, Notice that, like, we've seen a couple of times, arrows in the Greek world have the barbs on the end, like, when you imagine the shape of an arrow, um, you know, how it's, like, pointed, but it also has, like, points on the far end, so, you know, when it's embedded in flesh, if you draw it out, it actually wounds you more, because it is tearing the flesh as it goes. Um, notice, though, that this isn't consistent. The arrowheads, like... Menelaus's sword and, like, his spears are made of bronze. So there have been a couple of times already um, that, like, the doctor who removed the arrow from Menelaus, for example, he just crumples the arrow, the arrowhead, so it's not barbed anymore, and then draws it out that way. Um, here we just get it drawn out completely through the other side of the shoulder, so that's fun. Um, but Diomedes is such a badass at this point, and he's got Athena's divine intervention, so... Uh, Apparently, this is not a serious problem. Um, Pandarus, though, is kind of struck by this. 
Um, notice what he says to Aeneas around line 201. Aeneas, he looks like Diomedes to me, his shield, his grooved helmet, his horses. I'm not at all sure that he's not a god, but if he is who he, I think he is, Tydeus' son, he's not fighting like this without some god standing at his side and cloaked in mist. I swear one of the immortals turned aside an arrow I already shot at him just as it struck. It wound up hitting him in the right shoulder, clean through his breastplate. I thought I had sent him down to Hades, but I didn't get him. Some god is sure angry. Like, notice Pandarus is like, shit, this is not good. Whatever is happening with Diomedes, it's clearly divine intervention, and I want none of it. Um, but, nonetheless, Aeneas manages to convince him to go ahead and, like, team up together, and this turns out poorly for Pandarus. Pandarus gets very killed by Diomedes a little bit later. Um, so, yeah, probably would have been wiser for Pandarus to actually back off. Um, like, Pandarus does get another shot at him. He throws the spear, and it, like, pierces through Diomedes' shield, but it doesn't actually penetrate the breastplate. Um, and Pandarus gets excited. Got you right through the belly, didn't I? You've done for him. You've handed me the glory. And Diomedes is like, you didn't even come close. But I swear one of you two goes down now and gluts Ares with his blood. And he throws his spear, and it, like, hits him where the nose joins the eye socket, according to line 311. So, yeah, Pandarus is out. Poor Pandarus. Aeneas, though, we need to talk about Aeneas. Um, Apollodorus didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about Aeneas in his uh, description of the Trojan War, uh, but Aeneas has a long shadow uh, in the history of Greek mythology, as well as other traditions, and especially Roman mythology going forward. Um, Aeneas is the one guy who survives the Trojan War. Apollodorus did tell us that. Um, and while we didn't talk about it extensively, because we have plenty of other things to sort of talk about at that point, we should definitely mention that Aeneas' survival of the Trojan War is really important. Um, he not only survives the Trojan War, he is like the last uh, son of Priam to survive the Trojan War and to escape with his life. Which means he is effectively, at least from the Greeks' perspective and the Romans' perspective, the inheritor of Troy. He is the last scion of Troy. He is the final son, and therefore the person who would inherit all of the Trojan wealth, all of the Trojan posterity, all of the Trojan armor, or honor. Um, so he's a big deal. Now, admittedly, he's not actually fighting for Troy proper here. He is associated with one of Troy's allies. Um, not as much as, like, Sarpedon, who is fighting for Lysus. Like, Aeneas is more associated with Troy than that. But either way, Aeneas has his own thing going on. Aeneas is an A-list uh, Trojan hero. And everybody who's listening to this poem knows that he's got way more to do than get killed by some random hero at this stage of the game. Um, so, Aeneas does in fact pose a threat to Diomedes. He would in fact be a match for Diomedes given any other day of the week when Athena isn't at Diomedes' side helping him to just wreck everybody who gets in his way. Um, under the current circumstances though, Aeneas is not at all going to compete here. Um, notice how Diomedes dispatches him. Uh, so Aeneas fallen down with his shield and spear, afraid that the Greeks might drag the body of Pandarus away. He straddled it like a lion, sure of its strength, spear straight out, crouched behind his shield's disc, only too glad to kill whoever stood up to him, his mouth open in a battle howl. 
But Tydeus' son levered up in one hand a slab of stone much too large for two men to lift, as men are now, lifted it, and smashed it into Aeneas's hip where the thigh bone turns in the socket that medics call the cup. The rough stone shattered this joint and severed both tendons, ripping open the skin. The hero sank to his knees, clenching the dirt with one hand while midnight settled upon both his eyes. Now... A couple things to unpack here, because there is, once again, a lot going on. Um, first of all, notice that we are spending a lot of time protecting Pandarus's body. And indeed, in a moment, we're going to have a big fight over Aeneas's supposed body, even though it's actually just a phantom conjured by Apollo. Like, don't ask, like, it's in the text. Go look if you were curious. Um, we're going to spend a whole lot of time in this uh, epic poem talking about corpses and dead people, and people who have been defeated in battle. Um, because once somebody has been beaten, once some major Homeric hero has in fact gone down, that's not the end of the struggle, as far as these things go. Um, the next step for most Homeric heroes is to strip the body of the armor. And that armor is going to be a trophy going forward. This is how you prove that you have great honor for overcoming other important heroes. Diomedes wants Aeneas's armor because Diomedes knows that have, being the guy who beat up Aeneas is going to reflect well on him, is going to grant him more honor. So even after Aeneas falls and he seems to die, though he doesn't, Aphrodite and Apollo like whisk him away and he's perfectly safe and, you know, literally in like ten pages he's back on the battlefield ready to fight some more. Um, Diomedes not just kills Aeneas, or at least thinks he kills Aeneas, but he immediately wants the body. He wants to get the armor. We're going to see this a lot. We see it here in multiple places. We will see later when Diomedes meets Glaucus um, and finds out that they're like actually friends and that Glaucus's you know ancestor Bellerophon was in fact hanging out with Ty or Diomedes's ancestor, um, and therefore they're actually friends and not enemies. And they like stop everything right on the battlefield and then exchange armor. Um, the motion here is that they are honoring one another by giving them each other's armor. Um, but of course Homer notes that Diomedes' armor is made of bronze, while Glaucus's armor is made of gold, and Diomedes totally wins that exchange as it goes. Um, but keep this in mind, because it's going to be a really important plot point later on. Having the armor of your defeated foe is a major point in your favor. Um, more, it is worth more honor than tons of tripods and, you know, swag like oxen and possibly even concubines. Like, this is an important way that heroes sort of measure themselves up against other heroes. You know, I killed Aeneas, I have his armor, therefore I am a force to be reckoned with and I deserve your respect and your honor. Um, now the second thing that I definitely want to point out here, like, Aeneas is protecting Pandarus's body and his armor in order to sort of, like, get it back to his family, to preserve his honor intact. Um, again, lots and lots of battles are going to be fought over corpses for these reasons. But notice the other thing that is emphasized here. Um, Tydeus' son levered up in one hand a slab of stone much too large for two men to lift, as men are now. Notice, this is not the first time that this particular idea has come up in Homer. Um, Nestor, way back in Book 1, very much emphasized the same thing, that he used to run around with, like, real heroes, like Heracles and Perithous. Um 
heroes from an age even before Achilles and Odysseus and the rest of the Homeric heroes we see here. This is a really important idea in Greek mythology, and it is something that we're going to also see a lot over the course of the Iliad. This idea that even the heroes we encounter now are kind of second fiddle and really weak compared to the heroes that preceded them. And importantly, as Homer emphasizes it here, these heroes can do things in their time that we could only dream of. Diomedes is so much stronger than someone today here in the Iron Age that, type, that he can pick up a slab of stone too large for two grown men to lift with one hand and then fling it at someone. Like, Diomedes is so much more awesome than people are today in Homer's time 500 years afterwards. Now, on the outside, definitely notice that this means that Homer is well aware of the fact that he is writing well after the time of these heroes. The distance is an important part of this text that's, like, literally written into this, this whole poem. Uh, but also notice that cycle. This is kind of out of sync with the way that we in our modern times tend to think. Like, we tend to think that people are getting stronger overall from year to year. We have this fairly robust idea of progress where, you know, my generation is richer than the generation that came behind me, and the generation that came behind me is richer than the one that came behind them. You know, all of us measuring our progress according to technology and scientific accomplishments and so on and so forth. This is, again, fairly normal for the modern era. Like, ever since the Renaissance, this is kind of an important type way that we think of ourselves. But in the medieval world, and in the Greek world especially, this is not the case. Um, Hesiod has this whole passage in the, the I think it's in the Theogony, uh, where he describes the five races of human beings, and he emphasizes that each race, starting with the Golden Age, where there were like immortal men who were super awesome and super reverent to the gods and did all sorts of good things, um, you know, they were the greatest humans who ever lived, and they sort of have passed on, and they're gone now. Like, you can still find their spirits, you can encounter them from time to time because they are immortal, but they were way better than we are, and they are gone now. And they have given way to an inferior second silver race, which in turn gave uh, way to a third, even more inferior bronze race, and then that bronze race gave way to an even more inferior heroic age, which gave way to the Iron Age, which Hesiod describes as being us now. And he emphasizes this Iron Age, people are way weaker, way less, way less virtuous, way less tall or strong or important than they were before. Nestor emphasizes this by pointing to the Heroic Age, saying, I remember when Heracles used to clean up. And, like, we even get little hints of that. It's mentioned in, I think, Book 4, that Heracles, at one point, sacked Troy all by himself. Like, he had no help. He just showed up broke down the walls himself, took their stuff, and then went away. Like, no thousand ships, no massive army, just Heracles shows up, wrecks the place. He can do what Achilles and Agamemnon and Diomedes and Odysseus take ten years to do, and half of them die along the way. They were better, in short. And Diomedes and Achilles and Odysseus are better than we are. And it's emphasized that 
by Hesiod and by Homer, that every successive generation is weaker, is worse than the one came, that came before. The world, in short, is getting worse with every successive generation, not better. The best days of humans of the human race are behind us, in short, according to the ancients. This is a really fixed belief of theirs. They believe that history is cyclical, that we're going to repeat everything that we do over and over and over again, but they also very much believe that each cycle is weaker than the one that came before. People just aren't as strong as they used to be. Achilles is a great hero, the greatest of all of the Homeric heroes, but he is still a pale shadow in comparison to Theseus, or Bellerophon, or Perseus, or Heracles, or even somebody like Perithous, who is basically an also-ran. This is significant to note because it puts this moment, like this whole Trojan War cycle, in a position between the great myths of old, the stories of Heracles and so on, and the actual history of today, meaning the 8th the or ninth century BCE. Um, Homer is very much emphasizing that we are, you know, talking about this time where heroes are, in fact, more relatable than they were in, you know, Heracles' day, because Heracles could do incredible things that nobody has ever been able to do since, but they are still really far removed from us, who can't do any of this stuff. We can't lift huge rocks, and we can't shoot arrows, you know, at the sun, and we can't, like, do all of this awesome stuff that other heroes were supposedly able to do. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, as much as Achilles is sort of being held up to us as a superhero here, it is a second-generation inferior superhero. It, this is, you know, not Superman. This is, like, I'm not going to use an example because there's no way that I'm going to do, say something and then not be controversial after the fact. Like, Keep it in, pay attention to the fact that this is this intermediary generation. These are not as heroic as some of the heroes of old, but they are way better than we are, and we ourselves will be way better than our children and our grandchildren and so on and so forth. This is why you respect your elders. This is why old people are venerated like Nestor. This is why experience is as valuable as it is. People who have lived a long time have lived long enough to see that things were better once upon a time. Now, we might ascribe that to nostalgia glasses. The Greeks take it earnestly. This is a reality of their world, as far as they can tell. But, moving on. So, Aeneas is out. He is down. Um, and this is where Aphrodite swoops in to save him. Um, so... Notice Aphrodite does, in fact, come in and rescue him. Her milk-white arms, this is line 340, circled around him, and she enfolded him in her radiant robe to prevent the Greeks from killing him with a spear to the chest. So we have divine intervention. Once again, we have Aphrodite coming in and trying to save one of her favorites. We saw her save Paris earlier. We see her saving Aeneas now. But remember... Diomedes has been briefed about this. He is not supposed to mix it up with any gods and goddesses, but Aphrodite is the exception. So Diomedes remembers this, and he in fact charges. Diomedes knew this was a weakling goddess, we are told, around line 357. Not one of those who control human warfare. No Athena, no Enyo here who demolishes cities. And when he caught up to her in the melee, he pounced at her with his spear and, thrusting, nicked her on her delicate wrist. 
the blade piercing her skin through the ambrosial robe that the graces themselves had made for her. The cut was just above the palm, and the goddess's immortal blood oozed out, or rather the ichor that flows in the blessed god's veins, who, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and bloodless and therefore deathless as well. The goddess shrieked! and let her son fall, and Phoebus Apollo gathered him up in an indigo cloud to keep the Greeks from killing him with the spirit of a chest. Now notice the actual wound here, the injury that Aphrodite receives. This is not impressive. Like, we're talking paper cut level wound here. She is cut across the wrist, just above the palm. So this is like, really, really weak very much just a flesh wound. We have already seen multiple heroes recover from way worse than this. Menelaus getting shot in the leg with, a, with an arrow, Diomedes pulling an arrow out through his shoulder, like Aeneas getting his hip smashed by a rock. Like, all of these are way worse, respectively speaking, than Aphrodite getting a little nick across the wrist. But Aphrodite freaks the fuck out. She is absolutely beside herself here. She shrieks, she immediately goes to Ares and demands that he give her his chariot, she goes all the way back up to Olympus, and immediately has Dione, her mother, take care of her, and she even, like, has this whole wine thing going on, like this is at line four, uh, 409. Tydeus' son wounded me, that bully Diomedes, because I was carrying my son out of range. Aeneas, who is my dearest, the war has gone far beyond Trojans and Greeks. The Greeks are fighting the immortal gods. Like, notice, this is very much presented to us as an overreaction on Aphrodite's part. Like, Aphrodite gets this tiny little paper cut, she freaks out, immediately runs home, and is like, the world is coming to an end, the mortals are fighting the gods now, like, what is the world coming to? How can, you know, how is any of this under control? And Dione's like, hey, calm down, this kind of happens all the time. And we do get three stories, three myths, of gods who have been injured by or hurt by mortals in the past. Uh, we get the story of Ares, who got, like, stuck in a jar for a week. We get two stories of Heracles shooting gods with arrows. Like, even Hades apparently got shot with an arrow when uh, Heracles went down into Hades to pick up Cerberus. Long story, kind of involved, kind of hilarious that Hades got shot along the way. I imagine that Hades is extremely grumpy about this, and he's not necessarily a good sport about such things. Um... But it's very much emphasized here that that's because Aphrodite doesn't have warrior prowess. Like, there are a lot of gods who will totally throw down with the mortals, who can mix it up in battle, who frequently have an incredible effect on the battlefield. We've seen Athena but empowers Diomedes, and Diomedes can totally clean house now that he is empowered like this. In a moment, we're going to see Ares team up with Hector, and Hector is going to be unstoppable for a little while. Um, Apollo himself is going to throw down with Diomedes in a moment. This is all normal, because these are all very war-capable gods. They can definitely hold their own in combat. But Aphrodite, twice she gets rebuked here. First by Diomedes, when Diomedes stabs her, she, he yells, Get out of the war, daughter of Zeus! Don't you have enough to do distracting weak women? Keep meddling in war and you'll learn to shiver when it's even mentioned. Which you could definitely read as potentially insulting to Aphrodite. Like, remember, Aphrodite immediately turned on Helen when Helen started insulting her. You would expect something similar. But Aphrodite is legit scared of Diomedes at that point, so she just turns tail and runs. 
But after talking to Dione, her mother, Zeus even mentions to her, Dear child, war isn't your specialty, you know. You just take care of the pleasures of love and leave the fighting to Ares and to Athena. Now, you could read this, and some scholars have read this, as this sort of dismissiveness, like, War is men's work, and Aphrodite has no business being in the war. Like, reading this from an anti-feminist take, or reading this as misogyny seems a bit of a reach, especially seeing as the reason why Aphrodite got wounded is because Athena is empowering Diomedes, and Athena herself is a very capable war goddess, who is absolutely able to clean up like literally anybody else on the battlefield with the exception of Apollo and Zeus when he shows up. Um, so I really don't take this to be especially misogynistic. This is a mole business. Aphrodite is not a war goddess, and therefore she needs to pay attention to other things. Things that are more typically associated with women, but nonetheless, women can do war too under the right circumstances. So this is stay in your lane basically. Aphrodite has no business being on the battlefield. But notice right after this, we see Diomedes very much coming to a stop. This is line 466 or so. While these gods were talking to each other, Diomedes leapt upon Aeneas, even though he knew Apollo's hands were there above him. Great as Apollo was, Diomedes meant to kill the Trojan and strip off his armor. So notice, Diomedes is in the throes of rage here. Like, surprise, rage has come back to haunt us. Uh, we don't get the word here. We do get this description three times he leapt in homicidal frenzy, which definitely implies the same sort of relationship. Notice that Diomedes is so bloodthirsty at this point, having, you know, driven off Aphrodite, having wounded Aeneas, wanting the honor of the kill on Aeneas for himself. He leaps on the body and he's trying to strip the armor off, but at this point, he can see Apollo. Like, Apollo is right there. And notice how Apollo reacts. Three times he, meaning Diomedes, leapt in homicidal frenzy. Three times Apollo flicked his lacquered shield. Like, Diomedes is lunging at Aeneas, full body, like, tackling this body. And each time that he does, Apollo just, like, flicks it. Like, one flick of the fingers, and Diomedes is, like, reeling back to where he started. Three times Apollo flicked his lacquered shield, but when Diomedes charged a fourth last time, he heard a voice that seemed to come from everywhere at once, and knew it was Apollo's voice saying to him, Think it over, son of Tydeus, and get back. Don't set your sights on the gods. Gods are to humans what humans are to crawling bugs. Now, I want to emphasize this passage for a couple of reasons. We've stressed in both of the lectures past that the humans are very much at the mercy of the gods here. Like, for all of the power that Menelaus has, for all of the advantages Menelaus has over Paris, Menelaus can't get the kill on Paris because gods keep messing with his stuff. His weapons keep breaking. Aphrodite saves Aeneas from... Or, ah, Aphrodite saves Paris from his chin strap and whisks him away. You know, this happens fairly frequently in this text, and we recognize that the gods can, in fact, and do, in fact, have total control over the mortals. Now, here we see the first evidence that this is not the case. Diomedes can, in fact, wound Aphrodite. Um, the gods are not as all-powerful as they seem to be. We get a whole speech about all of these occasions where mortals seem to be pretty capable of taking down the gods. But Apollo is making a very different point here. 
Don't set your sights on the gods. Gods are to humans what humans are to crawling bugs. And notice that he doesn't expend any effort doing this. Tydeus has to use all his strength to lunge at Aeneas. Apollo just flicks him. And it's easily a match. Apollo does this several times in this epic poem, and you should pay attention any time that we get this sort of repetition in the poem. This three times the mortal does something, three times he is rebuffed. It happens surprisingly frequently across the Iliad and the Odyssey, and it is usually a good indication that fate is at work here. And in the Iliad especially, Apollo very much seems to represent the hand of fate. Apollo here is not acting out of some sort of selfish motivation or agenda. He's above it. Like, we've seen Apollo act in a way that is selfish. We've seen, you know, Apollo got slighted because, you know, Chryses' daughter got carried off by the Greeks. Chryses appeals to Apollo, and Apollo sends death and plague onto the Greeks. That's quasi-personal here. But even then, we don't get these sorts of speeches that we get from the other gods and goddesses. Like, we don't have, you know, Hera saying, you know, all of the work that I've done to destroy the Trojans, you'd really ruin that over this piece? Like, Apollo doesn't get a, this is my actual agenda monologue here. He just shows up, is apparently protecting Aeneas for no apparent reason, except because Aphrodite has gone away. And now that Diomedes is trying to kill Aeneas... Apollo is very much just standing in his way, unstoppably, unbreakably, and telling him, dude, go find somebody else to fight. You are way beneath me, and you're starting to tick me off. You do not mess with Apollo, in short. Apollo is not here for a grudge match, and nobody has an agenda against Apollo, for that matter. Like, even when Athena starts asking Zeus to mess with gods, it's not Apollo she targets, it's Ares. Because she and Ares have history. Apollo doesn't seem to have an agenda. He is just a force of fate here. It is not Aeneas's fate to die to Diomedes. Aeneas has other stuff to do. So Apollo stands in the way. And Diomedes can't do a damn thing about it. So he takes off. Now, a little while later, the Trojans manage to rally... Like, Sarpedon gives Hector this sort of biting speech, and Hector's like, all right, we're going to charge, and, like, Ares and Apollo throw down, and we get to see Ares, like, charging forward with Apollo, and at that point, like, Diabetes is like, well, shit, I'm out of this. Like, I, 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 if I can't even, like, be able to get past Apollo, there's no way I'm going to be able to fight actual Ares, god of war, in the middle of his bloodlust. So they back off, and there's, you know, another Trojan push forward, and the battle continues, going back and forth. I do want to sort of dwell on the subject of Ares, though, here. Because he's an important character in this whole section, he's the next major casualty on the Divine side, and his characterization is really interesting in Homer. We've seen... Homer isn't a huge fan of war throughout this entire passage. Like, right from the very beginning, in that earliest passage... Achilles' rage brought about countless deaths and innumerable pains. The implication here is that war is also responsible. Homer is not a war fan. As much as he is writing this long, long epic poem about the great exploits in war, he very much emphasizes not the glory, but the pain. Like all those people who keep dying, usually their war wounds, their, their mortal blows, are described in painstaking detail. 
more than, you know, the mighty strength of Diomedes, we get Pandarus getting a spear in the place where the eye socket joins the nose. Like, that's the detail that Homer tends to dwell on here. So it's striking when Ares is depicted that Ares is almost always depicted as monstrous. So when he first charges with Hector, we see this is line 560 or so, uh, Ares is joined by ravenous strength. And a little while later, as in fact he's, he's charging forward, we see uh, that Ares is, or this is line 639-ish, um, Hector saw all this from across the ranks and charged them with a shout. Trojans poured after him in force, led by Ares and Enyo in her power, who held in her hands the deafening, shameless horror of war. Ares is not friendly in the way that many of the other gods and goddesses are. Like, we've seen Athena help out Diomedes, help out uh, Achilles, and she's usually, you know friendly about it. Like, she reasons with them. She empowers them. She makes them stronger. But here we see Ares literally just charging down with strife and Enyo, like the sacker of cities in his wake, the horror of war being his weapon. Now we see that Athena also carries the horror of war. On line 791, she flung the tasseled Aegis, bordered with rout, and inset with the blood-chilling horrors of, roar, of war, in the center of which was a gorgon's head. Like, it, Athena is frequently portrayed as carrying this huge tower shield, the Aegis, which has on it the gorgon's head, Medusa's head, which was cut off by Perseus and given to her. And, you know, this head supposedly turns people to stone, but when Athena uses it, it causes them to flee in terror. Um, war is a dangerous, ugly business, and Athena knows how to use that weapon when she sees fit. But where Athena is frequently associated with other things, the glory of war, the honor of war, the empowerment of war, strength and beauty and gloriousness, Ares is not. Which is why when Hera and Athena basically petition Zeus, hey, Ares is wrecking the Greeks, are you really going to let him do this much damage? And Zeus gives them permission, yeah, go ahead, get Athena to take him out. When Athena goes down, like, everyone seems to be okay with stopping Ares in his tracks. Ares is bad news. The gods do not like him. The mortals do not like him. And when, in fact, we encounter him, when... Athena gets the go-ahead, yes, you can go ahead and wound, wound Ares. She goes to Diomedes and says, hey, you know, we're changing the rules here. Uh, this is line six or 867. Um, Athena shows up to, to Diomedes and, and basically asks, like, why aren't you charging forward? And Diomedes fairly bluntly answers, I know it's you, goddess, daughter of Zeus, and so I will answer you frankly. No, I'm not paralyzed by fear, and I'm not slacking off, but I am following the orders you gave me when you told me not to fight face-to-face -face with any of the gods except Aphrodite. If she came, you said I could wound her with bronze, that's why I've, I've withdrawn and given orders for all the troops to fall back to this spot. I know that Ares is controlling the battle. Like, we've seen Diomedes do what Ares, what Aphrodite, Ugh. Keeping all track of all these gods is getting a little rough here. I'm going to have to slow down a bit. Diomedes followed Athena's rules when he wounded Aphrodite. Diomedes forgot about Athena's rules when he started charging Apollo, but Apollo very forcefully reminded him of those rules. And then when Athena starts, or when Ares starts charging at Diomedes like a bat out of hell, Diomedes is like, right, 
not fighting Ares, let's back up and let this transpire and stay out of the way of this huge, dangerous god. So Athena asks him, like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, I was just following the rules. I, I didn't want to tangle with Ares. And Athena responds, Diomedes, son of Tydeus, I do love you. You don't have to fear Ares or any other of the immortals. Look who is here beside you. Drive your horses directly at Ares, and when you're at range, strike. Don't be in awe of Ares. He's nothing but a shifty lout. You promised Hera and me he would fight against Troy and help the Greeks. Now he's turned Trojan and abandoned us. This is another fairly striking moment here in our understanding of who Ares is. According to Athena, Ares used to be Team Greek and is now definitely Team Troy for no apparent reason. And this is fairly typical of Ares in the uh, myths surrounding the tradition as well. Ares is not to be trusted. He is kind of the worst parts of war, if Athena is the best parts of war. If Athena represents strategy and skill and arms and strength and glory, Ares is all about the bloodlust, the desire for the kill, just the rage, uncontrollable and destructive. He craves death and destruction, and he travels with death and destruction in his wake. And Athena knows this, and Athena opposes this. Um, and frequently, when Athena or Ares happens to be in a war, the other god will show up just to mess with the other person. Like, this is fairly typical in other myths that involve warfare. So the fact that Athena is fighting against Ares is significant, like this is typical, but at the same time notice how much she disdains him. He's nothing but a shifty lout. He betrayed Hera and I. He is untrustworthy. He is rotten to the core. He is even more unpredictable and mean and cruel than all of the other gods that we've interacted with so far. And when we, in fact, see him, when Homer describes him as Diomedes charges forward, notice it's even worse. So Pallas Athena handled the reins and whip and drove the horses directly at Ares, who at that moment was stripping the armor from a warrior named Periphas, a huge man, Aetolia's finest and his father's glory. Ares was busy removing the dead man's armor and getting smeared with blood. Athena put on Hades' helmet so Ares couldn't see her, but Ares did see Diomedes, and when he did, he dropped Periphas to lie in his own gore and headed straight for the hero. Notice the imagery here. Ares is stripping the armor from a fallen soldier, like hunched over in the blood and gore, covered with it. And we get this image of Ares as though he's some kind of vulture or something, which is especially weird. Like we just talked about just a little while ago about how important it is to the heroes to, you know, be able to claim the armor from fallen soldiers so as to indicate that, you know, they overcame them in battle and therefore are worthy of respect and honor. You know, Diomedes wants Aeneas's armor to prove that he overcame Diomedes, or that Diomedes could overcome Aeneas, and, you know, he's going to have this armor on his mantelpiece to brag to everyone who comes by, hey, I'm the guy who took out Aeneas. But... Ares? Ares wants to claim the armor from this random dude, Periphas? What does Ares need with the armor? He's the frigging god of war. He doesn't need, you know, to, like, brag to people, yeah, I killed this wimpy little human because he sucks and I'm awesome. Like, that's, that's totally not sensible. Ares is just taking stuff because he's taking stuff. And we don't even see that Ares killed Periphas. 
Notice, this is the first time the Periphys is brought up. If Ares did in fact kill Periphys, he would in fact have claim to the armor, weird as it would be for a god to try and claim mortal armor, but we don't even get that. He could just be, you know, a vulture, sitting around in the blood and gore, stripping armor from bodies to kind of present himself as stronger than he is. And he's the god of war. He should be above this, right? Now notice, Ares can't see Athena. Athena is disguised with Hades' helmet, but he immediately goes for Diomedes because, again, that bloodlust, that desire for destruction. As soon as they were in range of each other, Ares leaned out over his horse's backs and thrust, frantic for a kill. Like, Ares doesn't even want the honor so much, he just wants to kill Diomedes because he likes killing. Athena's hand deflected the spear in midair and sent it sailing harmlessly over Diomedes' chariot, and when Diomedes thrust next, she drove his spear home to the pit of Ares' belly where the kilt piece covered it. The spearhead sliced right through to the flesh, and when Diomedes pulled it out, Ares yelled so loud you would have thought ten thousand warriors had shouted at once, and the sound reverberated in the guts of Greeks and Trojans as if Diomedes had struck not a god in armor, but a bronze gong nine miles high. So, with Athena's help, Diomedes wounds Ares. And much like Aphrodite, Ares overreacts. Now, this is a legit wound. This is not just like a tiny little cut across the wrist, like was the case with Aphrodite. He gets the spear right in the gut. Like, Diomedes rams it right through the gut, and Athena rams it home. He is seriously wounded. This is the sort of wound that would, in fact, kill a human being. But we are not dealing with a human being. We are dealing with a god here. So Ares rushes off. He quickly scaled the heights of Olympus, sat down sulking behind Cronian Zeus, showed him the immortal blood oozing from his wound, and whined these winged words. Father Zeus, doesn't it infuriate you to see this violence? We gods get the worst of it from each other whenever we try to help out men. Why did you have to give birth to that madwoman, your marauding daughter, who is always breaking the rules? All the rest of us gods, everyone on Olympus listen to you, but she can say or do whatever she wants. You even urge her on, your grey-eyed girl. Just now she's been egging on Diomedes to rampage against the immortal gods. He wounded Cyprus first, got her on the wrist, then charged at me like an avenging spirit. My fast footwork saved me, or I would be lying in a heap of gruesome corpses, or barely alive from taking hits from his spear. Notice, he whines. Like, the god of war, glutting on blood, stealing the armor from kills that may or may not have been his own. This guy who's been laying waste to the Greek forces left and right. He gets one wound, and he's like, this is disgusting. This is offensive. Why do we let the mortals do this? How, how do you get off letting Athena go around wrecking people like this? And notice Zeus doesn't tolerate this. Shifty loud, don't sit here and by me and whine. You're the most loathsome god on Olympus. You actually like fighting in war. You take after your hard-headed mother, Hera. I can barely control her either. One way or another, she got you into this. Be that as it may, I cannot tolerate your being in pain. Your mother did, after all, bury you to me. But if you were born to any other god, you'd be long buried in hell below the Titans. Notice, Zeus doesn't like Ares. 
Nobody likes Ares. He is just a shifty lout. He whines and complains. He overreacts to being wounded when he is causing incredible destruction on the battlefield himself. He is totally unaware of his own hypocrisy, and he just is annoying and frustrating and obnoxious, and you just want to punch him. But notice that line, you actually like fighting in war. This is the second time we've heard that in this text. The first time was actually Agamemnon. Way back at line 187 on, in book one, when Agamemnon is insulting Achilles in response to Achilles, like, questioning his, his choices and saying that he didn't need to be in the war, Agamemnon says the same thing. You actually like fighting in war. This is a bad thing. This is an insult. It's an insult to Achilles, it's an insult to Ares, and it is an insult that links Ares and Achilles. Achilles may be less than awesome because he is associated with Ares, and Ares' destructive tendencies, this bloodlust for bloodlust's sake, this uncontrollable rage that causes nothing but destruction, harm, and pain. Ares isn't a good god. He isn't someone you can trust, and he isn't someone who you want to be on the same side as. Ares is trouble, and just trouble. And if Ares is the god of war, then that probably means that Homer's telling us that war, likewise, is nothing but destructive, painful, awful, destructive without reason or cause. Ares is bad news, and so is war, as far as Homer is concerned. So they patch him up. Sure, he is Zeus's son, after all, although probably the son that he likes the least. And we continue. The war goes on. But weirdly enough, Book 6 isn't really about war all that much. Uh, Book 6 is one of the most fascinating sections in the entirety of the Iliad. It's probably my favorite passage in the entire Iliad. Um, and it is primarily about Hector not fighting, but going back to Troy and getting his errands done, so to speak. Now, at this point, we've seen the flow of battle changing directions several times. Initially, it's the Trojans who sort of initiate battle after the duel with, um, with Menelaus and Paris, and Agamemnon has to, like, kick the Greeks into motion in order to get them to fight. Uh, but then pretty quickly, Diomedes is, like, leading the charge, and the Greeks are pushing the Trojans back. But then Diomedes is pushed back by Ares and Hector. But then Diomedes wounds Ares and takes him out of the fight. Now the Greeks are on the offensive again. Here, we get this sort of interruption. Helenus, fellow son of Priam and brother to Hector, tells him that he needs Hector to go back to town and have the women of the city offer a sacrifice to Athena in order to get her to quit empowering Diomedes and tearing up the Trojan lines. So Hector and company all spur up their troops, get them ready to fight some more, lead another offensive, and then Hector slips off to do his responsibility. And this is a really interesting passage in part because it shows us what Troy looks like behind the lines of the battle, and it shows us a lot about Hector and the other people that he is very close to, but it also shows us a side of this war that we haven't really seen yet, namely what things were supposed to look like when there wasn't a war going on. Remember, the Greeks are all sitting on the beach. They're all encamped there. 
this is not normal for them. They have no wives, they have no homes, they have nothing except years and years of just habitating in this encampment. But this is, but for the Trojans, Troy is right there. The city is their city, their home. They are literally defending it from the Greeks. It's, in, it's right behind them as they fight. So they, this whole war has a different meaning for them than it does for the Greeks. The Greeks are perpetually demoralized. They constantly want to go home. In Book 2, they practically take to the ships as soon as Agamemnon gives them the option. But for Hector, there's no home to go home to that isn't under siege from the Greeks. There is no safe place for them. There is no alternative to fighting. They have to fight because if they don't, their home will be destroyed. So Hector returns home in order to relay this message to his mother Hecuba and to get things moving to the sacrifice of Athena. Now I want to kind of walk through this as with the time that we have left here, and hopefully I'll be able to get it done before you know this goes on for too long. Uh, so this is on page 119, around line 246 in Book 6. When Hector reached the oak tree by the western gate, Trojan wives and daughters ran up to him, asking about their children, their brothers, their kinsmen, their husbands. He told them all, each woman in turn, to pray to the gods. Sorrow clung to their heads like mist. Notice the first thing that happens when Hector re-enters the city. He is mobbed by women, the daughters, the wives, the mothers of all of the men in the field, who are all very curious about where their sons and fathers and brothers and so on and so forth, how they're doing. You know, this huge battle has been going on, and I'm sure Troy is aware of it. Like, numerous people are watching things happen from the Great Tower in Ilium. So they're worried. They're scared for the sake of their husbands and menfolk. And Hector answers them to pray. Pray to the gods. But notice that it says, to each woman in turn. He takes time with them. He does not just blow right by them. As important as it is for him to, you know, get his job done and get back to the battlefield, he does make time for them. And in fact, he probably knows them. And importantly, he knows their husbands and their fathers and their sons. He fights with them. Hector, we haven't seen a whole lot of at this point in the text, but what we have seen is that he does respond to responsibility and to honor. He frequently takes the needs of his troops into consideration, and he is very quick to be shamed if, in fact, he has done something wrong or if he's holding back or if, you know, somebody like Sarpedon comes up to him and says, what are you doing? Hector is usually at the front of the fight because he is ashamed not to be. And this is, if anything, even more important here, as we'll see. But it's also significant that Hector has a relationship with these people. He is ashamed in front of his men because he cares about them, because he respects them, and because he cares about what they think of him. Like, even when he's criticizing Paris back in Book 3, he emphasizes, you are a joke to the enemy, and everyone on our side says that you're the worst. Because to Hector, that's a huge problem. That's something that he cares about deeply, and he can't understand why Paris doesn't, why Paris seems indifferent to the opinion of his comrades. So Hector takes time to talk to the women. He values their opinions and their questions, too. Then he comes to Priam's palace, and we get a description of the palace as well. 
A beautiful building made of polished stone with a central courtyard flanked by porticos, upon which opened fifty adjoining rooms where Priam's sons slept with their wives. Across the court, a suite of twelve more bedrooms housed his modest daughters and their husbands. It was here that Hector's mother met him, a gracious woman with Laodicea, her most beautiful daughter in tow. Hecuba took his hands in hers and said, Hector, my son, why have you left the war and come here? Are those abominable Greeks wearing you down in the fighting outside, and does your heart lead you to our Acropolis to stretch your hands upward to Zeus? But stay here while I get you some honey-sweet wine so you can pour a libation to Father Zeus first and the other immortals, then enjoy some yourself if you will drink. Wine greatly bolsters a weary man's spirits, and you are weary from defending your kinsmen. Notice two things about this. First, notice that the palace is gorgeous. Homer spends some time dwelling on it. It's huge. It's this huge courtyard bordering 50 adjoining rooms where all of Priam's sons and daughters are sleeping. Like, all of this is extremely lavish, denotes extreme wealth, and is gorgeous to boot. It would be a real shame if something happened to it, in short. Homer is emphasizing that Troy has great beauty. As much as everyone is fighting over it, as much as Hera is hell-bent on seeing this place destroyed, as much as the Greeks are eager to sack it and destroy it, Homer emphasizes this is a good place. It is a beautiful place. It is a place worth protecting and preserving. And then when Hecuba confronts Hector, notice she goes full mom on him. Like, Hector is right here from the battle. Hecuba is like, hey, you look tired. Well, just sit down, have some wine, take a load off. Like, you you know, wine will help you bolster your spirits. Like, she's immediately trying to take care of him. So there's a relationship there as well. Like, you can imagine this from any mother who is, like, sending a care package to their kid at college or something like that. You know, there is a sort of obvious maternal instinct on display here with Hecuba. They have a good relationship. Hector cares about Hecuba, and Hecuba cares about Hector. Which is honestly kind of surprising, given how many sons and daughters Priam actually has. You'd think a few would get lost in the shuffle. Sunlight shimmered on Greek Hector's helmet. Mother, don't offer me any wine. It would drain the power out of my limbs. I have too much reverence to pour a libation with unwashed hands to Zeus Almighty, or to pray to Cronian in the black cloud banks, spattered with blood and the filth of battle. Notice Hector is also pious. As much as this sounds pretty enticing, this idea of, you know, getting a little drink and also, you know, performing his libation to the gods, and you know that Hecuba is sort of saying, hey, definitely pour a libation to the gods, but that's basically just an excuse to, you know, get a little wine in you. Um, Hector just rejects this outright. He doesn't want the wine himself because it would weaken him, like it drains the power from his limbs. But he also very much acknowledges he is not in a fit state to make a libation to Zeus. A libation, by the way, you're going to hear about this quite a bit. We've already seen it happen several times and gone largely uncommented on. Um, before drinking, especially when there's something this like important going on, like you were making arrangements for a sacred duel or you were preparing a sacrifice, um, usually you pour out some of the wine from your cup before drinking it. So you pour out the wine for the gods, specifically Zeus and then the other gods after him, and then you drink from the cup yourself. 
Um, and this is also the form that the sacrifices themselves take. You'll note that the sacrifices always have this two-part setup, where you do, in fact, like, announce that you're going to make the sacrifice to Zeus or the other gods or whoever you're trying to appeal to. You kill the animal, you cut its throat, but the meat you save, and then you eat, you feast upon it. The gods are interested in the smell, the savor. Um, and, like, you'll notice that Zeus emphasizes Ilion has always been good about giving sweet savor to the gods. The aroma is what they're interested in, the smell. Um, so here, too, it's you pour out a little of the wine, Zeus gets that part, you pour out a little more of the wine, the other gods get that part, and then you drink the rest of the wine and you participate in this, in this interaction. But Hector refuses to, because at this point he is covered in blood and filth. Like, he is disgusting. He has literally just come from killing people. And that would be dishonorable to the gods. That would shame his sacrifice. So he tells Hecuba to do the job instead. Which, we get another repetition here, verbatim, from what Hellenus told Hector. And we get the actual execution as well. Hector instructs Hecuba, you know, take the finest robe that you have and a bunch of unblemished heifers, go sacrifice them all to Athena, and beg that she leave us alone and stop empowering Diomedes. And that's what she does. She gets the finest robe she has, she gets all the sacrifices together, the priest utters all the words, and importantly, in our third major sacrifice scene here, we get another one of those devastating lines, but Pallas Athena denied her prayer. We are one for three on successful sacrifices at this point. Apollo did in fact stop the plague, but Zeus did not stop the war, and Athena isn't going to stop Diomedes for the sake of Hector, Hecuba, and the sacrifice of Troy. So once again, as much as Hector is being especially pious here, and he's emphasizing to the rest of his family to do the same, it does not fly. Athena is too mad to accept sacrifices from the Trojans at this point. Now next, Hector goes to Paris, and we get another Hector-Paris interaction here, which is especially interesting after the one that we saw in Part 3, um, when Hector was lambasting Paris for, like, cowardly evading his responsibilities when he challenged the Greeks to a duel. Um, while they prayed to great Zeus's daughter, Hector came to Paris's beautiful house, which he had built himself with the aid of the best craftsmen in all wide Troy. Sleeping quarters, a hall, and a central courtyard near to Priam's and Hector's on the city's high rock. Hector entered, Zeus's light upon him. A spear sixteen feet long cradled in his hand, the bronze point gleaming in the feral gold. He found Paris in the bedroom, busy with his weapons, fondling his curved bow, his fine shield and breastplate. Helen of Argos sat with her household women, directing their exquisite handicraft. So remember, when last we saw Paris, he was getting whisked away by Aphrodite to hang out in this bedroom with, he with Helen. And Hector is pissed that this is how it's gone down. Hector meant to shame Paris and provoke him. This is a fine time to be nursing your anger, you idiot. We're dying out there defending the walls. It's because of you the city is in this hellish war. If you saw someone else holding back from combat, you'd pick a fight with them yourself. Now get up before the whole city goes up in flames. So like we saw before, Hector absolutely chastises Paris for withdrawing from battle. This whole thing is Paris's fault. It is because of Paris that the Trojans are in this situation, that the Trojans have to fight this war. And yet Paris keeps finding excuses somehow to stay out of the fighting. Now, 
Paris, once again, in his characteristic unflappability, responds just as he did in Book 3. That's no more than just, Hector. But listen now to what I have to say. It's not out of anger or spite toward the Trojans I've been here in my room. I only wanted to recover from my pain. My wife was just now encouraging me to get up and fight, and that seems the better thing to do. Victory takes turns with men. Wait for me while I put on my armor, or go on ahead. I'm pretty sure I'll catch up with you. This is very much a blow-off kind of reaction. Like, apparently, Paris has been sitting in his bedroom, like, polishing his armor and his weapons while, you know, all this fighting and dying has been going on, completely oblivious or indifferent to all of the Trojans sacrificing their lives while Diomedes cuts through them like a butter knife. Hector charges him with this, calls him out on it, and his response is, eh, some days you win, some days you lose. Today I'm losing, so I'm just chilling in the room. You know, victory takes turns with men, he says. And Hector doesn't have a response to this. Like, it literally says, to which Hector said nothing. But at this point, Helen intervenes, and we get another classic Helen speech here. Brother-in-law of a scheming, cold-blooded bitch, referring to herself here. I wish that on the day my mother bore me, a windstorm had swept me away to a mountain or into the waves of the restless sea, swept me away before all this could happen. But since the gods have ordained these evils, why couldn't I be the wife of a better man, or one sensitive at least to repeated reproaches? Paris has never had an ounce of good sense, and never will. He'll pay for it someday. But come inside and sit down on this chair, dear brother-in-law. You bear such a burden for my wanton ways and Paris's witlessness. Zeus has placed this evil fate on us so that in time to come, poets will sing of us. Notice we get another self-destructive introduction from Helen here. She calls herself a cold-blooded bitch. She says that she wishes she had never been born and that a windstorm had swept her away to a mountain on the day she was born so none of this would ever happen. She still blames herself for everything bad that has happened. But she also very directly says that Paris also sucks. Given that she has to be the center of this whole conflict, why couldn't she at least have a decent husband? Um, one sensitive at least to repeated reproaches. Paris sucks, in short. Even Helen knows it. And based on this and the, her resistance to Aphrodite sort of sweeping her off to Paris, we get a pretty clear view that Paris isn't even respected by Helen at this point. This is not, you know, tragic romance, Romeo and Juliet at the center of this huge epic conflict. No, Helen doesn't want to be here. Paris is just blindly causing all of this havoc and misery. He is more culpable than Helen, not as culpable or less culpable. He is the primary person responsible for this. But as much as he is guilty, again, we should definitely also emphasize that the gods are also responsible. Priam told us this, and we have seen plenty of evidence ourselves. He doesn't seem to notice. He doesn't seem to care. He is irresponsible. It's like he is the deadbeat, you know, kid who is sitting in his room just getting high all the time instead of doing his studies, and will thus fail my class. Um... This, there's no future for Paris. He doesn't give a shit about anything. He is letting the entire world of his responsibilities just pass him by. He doesn't care. There's no reason for him to care, as far as he can tell. And to Hector, this is baffling. Like, when Paris does, in fact, join the fight at the end of this book, we get this really perplexed speech from Hector. 
this is line uh, 549 and following. I don't understand you, Paris. No one could slight your work in battle. You're a strong fighter, but you slack off. You don't have the will. It breaks my heart to hear what the Trojans say about you. It's on your account they have all this trouble. Come on, let's go. We can settle this later. If Zeus ever allows us to offer in our halls the wine bowl of freedom to the gods above after we drive these bronze-kneed Greeks from Troy. Hector is just... He's at his last straw with Paris. Like, he doesn't even know how to respond to him. On the one hand, Hector isn't acting like a brother here. He's acting like a dad. He's trying to sort of motivate Paris, to sort of get Paris to re recognize what he has done to all of the people that, that Hector cares about. Paris is screwing over his own father here, his own mother, his family, his friends, his city, his country. All of the soldiers are fighting for him, and he's blowing it all off in his room with Helen and his toys. This is totally unfathomable to Hector. He doesn't know how to fix this. To Helen, she just hates him. Just resents him, top to bottom. But if you are trying to figure out why Hector cares so much about this, why Hector keeps insisting that it upsets him that the Trojans are speaking poorly about Paris, take a look at the next passage when Hector meets Andromache, and you'll see what is actually motivating Hector here. So Hector leaves. He leaves Helen, he leaves Paris. He is super chill to Helen, though, I should mention. Don't ask me to sit, Helen, he says. Even though you love me, you will never persuade me. My heart is out there with our fighting men. Like, he also, like Priam, treats Helen like a human being. Not like a sex object, not like a thing of beauty, not like this horrible thing that has happened to the city. He cares about her. He recognizes that Helen may even love him. Um, he tells her to get Paris moving, but he's got to go... I'm going to my house now, he says, to see my family, my wife and my boy. I don't know whether I'll ever be back to see them again, or if the gods will destroy me at the hands of the Greeks. And he does. He goes. He looks for Andromache at his house. Andromache is his wife. And he can't find her. She's not there. When we find her, we discover that she's actually on the Tower of Ilium. She's watching the battle. Which, we have seen a woman do this before. This is where Helen and Priam were sort of talking over, like, that's Agamemnon, that's Odysseus, that's um, Diomedes, etc., etc. But this is, once again, a little unusual. When, in fact, Andromache catches up with him, you'll notice she's really upset. And we get this long speech from her, which has a lot going on in it. Possessed is what you are, Hector, she says. Your courage is going to kill you, and you have no feeling left for your little boy or for me, the luckless woman who will soon be your widow. It won't be long before the whole Greek army swarms and kills you. And when they do, it will be better for me to sink into the earth. Notice that Andromache leads with despair. She doesn't believe that Hector is going to survive this war. She thinks that it is just a matter of time until he dies. Your courage is going to kill you, and you have no feeling left for your little boy or for me. When I lose you, Hector, she goes on, there will be nothing left, no one to turn to, only pain. My father and mother are dead. Achilles killed my father when he destroyed our city, Thebes, with its high gates, but had too much respect to despoil his body. 
He burned it instead with all his armor and heaped up a barrow. And the spirit women came down from the mountains, daughters of the storm god, and planted elm trees around it. I had seven brothers once in that great house. All seven went down to Hades on a single day, cut down by Achilles in one blinding sprint through their shambling cattle and silver sheep. Mother, who was queen in the forests of Placos, he took back as prisoner with all her possessions, then released her for a fortune in ransom. She died in our house, shot by Artemis's arrows. Notice Andromache has history with Achilles. Like, it's weird to think of this, because Achilles has been out of this entire epic for the last, you know, five books. Like, we haven't talked about him since book one. But notice that Andromache, her entire family, is dead because of Achilles. Achilles straight up, mur straight up killed her father, presumably in war, killed all seven of her brothers at a run, and captured and ransomed her mother for a fortune that presumably bankrupted the family, and she died shortly afterwards. Andromache has had her life destroyed by Achilles. And she stresses to Hector, you are my father, you are my mother, you are my brother and my blossoming husband. Hector is all that she has left. Hector is literally everything to her. Like, this is ancient Greece. Women do not have economic power or security here. They are completely dependent on the men in their life for protection, for economic sustenance, for survival, essentially. If Hector dies, she has no one to go back to. No family to take care of her. No brothers who could take, them un take her under their wing. No one who could potentially marry her off to somebody else. She will be destitute and homeless if Hector dies. Like, fortunately, Priam's a decent guy, so presumably Priam will take care of him, but that assumes that Priam's around, which is kind of a big question, seeing as she's convinced that Iliad is going to fall. So Hector is everything to her. She can't afford to lose him, in short, and she reproaches him for continuing to stay in battle because he's all she's got. If he dies, she's done. Show some pity, she says, and stay here by the tower. Don't make your child an orphan, your wife a widow. Station your men here by the fig tree where the city is weakest because the wall can be scaled. Three times their elite have tried an attack here, rallying around Ajax or glorious Idomeneus or Atreus' sons or mighty Diomedes, whether someone in on the prophecy told them or they are driven here by something in their heart. Notice, though, that as much as Andromache is absolutely heartbroken, absolutely dreading the possibility of Hector's death and appealing to him on an emotional level. You are heartless for leaving your wife and son to be just orphans and destitute in your absence if you die. Her next appeal is a really clever one. She appeals to his sense of strategy. Stay here by the weakness in the wall. The Greeks have repeatedly tried to get over the wall this way. You could station you, yourself and your men here and better protect the city this way. In short, Andromache knows she's not going to win a, an argument with Hector based on emotion alone. She has to appeal to his strategy. And this tells us something about their relationship. Andromache was standing on the walls, watching the battle transpire, standing on the tower to see as Hector was fighting. She, she advises him according to strategic purposes. She's got a head for this. She's smart. She's capable. She's 
a good strategist in her own right. She can definitely outthink Hector in certain ways. She is a very good wife to him. She's a match for him. She is his equal. Which is something we haven't seen thus far. Like, we had that whole conversation about women as objects, Perseus and Chryseis getting passed around, Hera is just second fiddle to Zeus, so on and so forth. Andromache is different. Andromache is an equal to Hector. She is presented here as though she has every bit as much depth and intelligence and emotional intelligence. She cares about Hector. She cares about her son. She is well aware of her ugly position and... If anything, Homer is stressing to us, she is sympathetic because women's positions suck in this world. Homer is well aware that Andromache, because of the way that the Greek society is organized, is screwed without a man. As much as this is misogyny, as much as the culture that Homer is describing is misogynistic, Homer suggests that pretty honestly that this really sucks for women and we should be aware and attentive to that. But notice Hector's reply here. Yes, Andromache, I worry about all this myself. But my shame before the Trojans and their wives with their long robes trailing would be too terrible if I hung back from battle like a coward. And my heart won't let me. I have learned to be one of the best, to fight in Troy's first ranks, defending my father's honor and my own. Deep in my heart I know too well there will come a day when holy Iliad will perish, and Priam and the people under Priam's ash spear. But the pain I will feel for the Trojans then, for Hecuba herself and for Priam king, for my many fine brothers who will have by then fallen in the dust behind enemy lines, all that pain is nothing to what I will feel for you, when some bronze-armored Greek leads you away in tears on your first day of slavery, and you will work some other woman's loom in Argos, or carry water from a Spartan spring, all against your will, under great duress. And someone, seeing you crying, will say, that is the wife of Hector, the best of all the Trojans when they fought around Ilium. Someday someone will say that, renewing your pain and having lost such a man to fight off the day of your enslavement. But may I be dead, and the earth heaped up above me before I hear your cry as you are dragged away. Hector reveals his motivation to us in this speech. Why he is so passionate about defending Troy. Why he is always at the front of the battle. Why he is so frustrated and annoyed with Paris because Paris keeps shirking his responsibility. Hector knows he is all that stands between the Greeks and Troy. He is their best their best soldier, their best general, and their only hope. He is more than just the only person that Andromache is relying on. The whole city is dependent on him. And on the one hand, he recognizes he would be ashamed before all of those soldiers who are giving their lives, who before all of the troops who are standing on the front lines, all the women with their long robes trailing who are hoping to see their menfolk come home, they depend on Hector being there, protecting them, fighting in that first line of defense. But notice, too, that he's got another motivation here. He agrees with Andromache. His, he also despairs. He believes he is going to die. 
But importantly, he also believes there will come a day when Holy Ilion will perish and Priam and the people under Priam's ash spear. The city is doomed, in short. Hector knows that it is a desperate fight that they are engaged in, and it's one they're going to lose. It's just a matter of time. And it breaks his heart. It destroys him inside to know that this beautiful city with the beautiful palace will one day lie in ruins. That his beloved father Priam and his beloved mother Hecuba will both be dead or captured. But even more than all of that, all of that knowledge, that gnawing horrible despair, that, that suspicion that all of this is going to be destroyed, all of that pales in comparison to, as he says, expecting what will happen when you get carried off. When Andromache, his wife, is carried off by the Greeks along with their son. He says he expects that one day they will say to her, you were the wife of the greatest of the Trojan soldiers. But as he emphasizes, may I be dead, and the earth heaped up above me before I hear your cry as you were dragged away. If that's where we're going here, if it is inevitable that Hector that Hector will fail and that the city will collapse, be sacked and destroyed, Hector doesn't want to be there for it. Hector wants to die. He wants to go down in the first line of defense. He would much rather have that than to be there fighting in the middle of the city as it burns, be bound and gagged and like captured just so he can watch his wife and his child be carried away by Greek slavers. May I be dead, he says. I don't want to see it. I don't want to be here for it. I would rather die than watch my city fall and watch my wife be carried away. With these words, resplendent Hector reached for his child, who shrank back, screaming into his nurse's bosom, terrified of his father's bronze-encased face and the horsehair plume he saw nodding down from the helmet's crest. This forced a laugh from his father and mother, and Hector removed the helmet from his head and set it on the ground all shimmering with light. Then he kissed his dear son and swung him up gently and said a prayer to Zeus and the other immortals. Zeus and all gods, grant that this my son become, as I am, foremost among Trojans, brave and strong, and ruling Ilion with might. And may men say he is far better than his father when he returns from war, bearing bloody spoils, having killed his man. And may his mother rejoice. Hector reaches down to take his son. Now we've been told his name. Hector apparently calls his son Scamandrius, but everybody else calls him Astyanax, the lord of the city, for Hector alone could save Ilion now. Everyone calls him this in this kind of affectionate way. They know that Hector is their only hope, so they call Astyanax the lord of the city, as though since he is lord of Hector's feelings, of Hector's heart. Therefore, he rules Hector, and Hector is the only hope. He is, in fact, in charge, even more than Priam is. So Hector reaches down for his son, his baby boy. And the kid screams. He doesn't recognize his father, because Hector is wearing the helmet, you know, the big bronze shining helmet with the big horsehair plume. So Hector and Andromache laugh. And Hector takes off his helmet, and he picks up his son, you know, tosses him in the air, swung him up gently, and he prays. 
I hope that he grows up to be greater than I am. I hope that he becomes a great king in Troy. That he embarrasses his father with his exploits. He always gets his man. He makes his mother rejoice. But notice, Hector was literally just saying a moment ago that none of this could ever happen. He knows in his heart that Troy will fall, that he will die, and that Astyanax will never grow up to be a great warrior. On the one hand, Hector is in despair. On the other, he has this incredibly fragile hope. Like, for a moment, he forgets that all of this is bound to happen, that everyone is doomed. He just loves his son. And this moment is so powerful because Homer's can see just so clearly this family dynamic here. Everything that he describes here is something that you could see today. You know, the kid not recognizing his dad and getting frightened. And, you know, the parents lovingly, like, taking care of him, holding him to their chest, swinging him up in the air. You know, this is just dad stuff. Hector's not the great warrior protecting Iliad. He's just a father who cares about his son and who cares about his wife and who is trying desperately to hold this thing together for as long as he can so maybe his boy can grow up and become a great man himself. But we know what happens to Astyanax. Apollodorus told us, it's probably something you missed because you didn't know who Astyanax was, you didn't think that it was terribly important, and there was a lot of other stuff to keep track of. But Astyanax, when the Greeks take over the city, when they do, in fact, kill Hector and later take over Troy and they lead Andromache away and she is actually captured and taken as a slave by Neoptolemus, Achilles' own son, Astyanax is carried to the walls of Troy and thrown off. He plummets to his death. He's never going to grow up. He's never going to be a great warrior. He's never going to be the man who honors his mother and whose mother rejoices in him. The Greeks know they can't let him survive, because he will inevitably avenge his father. So they kill him, outright. And on some level, Hector knows this, and on some level, Andromache knows this. But they hope anyway. They pray. Let him grow big and strong. And the subtext here, very clearly, is that once again, Zeus is not going to grant this prayer. That's not how this is going down. Hector goes back to the battlefield, and it turns out this is, in fact, the last time he will see his wife and will see his child. This is it. He's never coming back. And Andromache puts the whole house in mourning. As Homer writes, With these words, Hector picked up his plumed helmet and his wife went back home, turning around often, her cheeks flowered with tears. When she came to the house of manslaying Hector, she found a throng of servants inside and raised among these women the ritual lament. And so they mourned for Hector in his house, although he was still alive, for they did not think he would ever again come back from the war or escape the murderous hands of the Greeks. They mourned for him. They basically have a funeral for Hector because he's doomed. They know he's doomed. They know he's going to die. 
and with him dies the hope of Troy, the hope for his family, the freedom for his wife, and the life of his son. All of this hangs over them. And all Hector really wants is to just be a dad. This is the real cost of the war. And this is why Hector is fighting. He is protecting someone. You know, Achilles and Agamemnon are all here to talk about honor, and, you know, they've got their own agendas, and they're here for glory and riches and all sorts of things. Hector is here because he cares about people. His family, his friends, his son. He fights so that they will be protected. So that they will grow up and have a good life. But he will fail. And that sucks. As much as most people think that Achilles is the primary hero of the Iliad, I would make a very strong argument that it is, in fact, Hector. Hector is the decentest of the Homeric heroes we've encountered so far. He fights for the right reasons. He fights to protect his homeland, to save his wife, and to see his son grow up big and strong. He knows he can't avoid his fate. He knows it. He says it literally right after he utters the prayer to Zeus. No man has escaped his fate. He knows he's doomed, but he fights anyway. Because he can't bear to see that destruction all of the things that he cares about ruined, carried off, and destroyed. He fights because he cares. Not about himself, but about his family, his fellow soldiers, his friends, his homeland. That's why you fight. Hector's got his priorities in order. And I think we would be wise to compare each of the other Homeric heroes to this standard to see how heroic they actually are. Achilles is a whiny, petulant little rat, sitting in his tent, refusing to see the damage that his actions are doing. But Hector? Hector is painfully aware that everything depends on him all the time. Every decision he makes is calculated for the best of Troy. He can't understand Paris for giving up those responsibilities. You better believe that he can't understand Achilles for literally praying for his countrymen to die. Hector is a hero. Hector's got it figured out. Hector knows how to be a good man in a world that is hostile and cruel and unpredictable. He is doing his best where others are shirking their responsibilities. He is fighting when other people are lying down on the job. That's who he is. He is our role model here. Watch him. Watch what Homer has to say about him. He's not perfect. He will, in fact, screw up at least once, possibly more, over the course of this epic poem. But we know what he is at his best by looking at this section, by reading his relationship with his family, with the people that he cares about. This is what wars get fought for. This is why he is honored as much as he is. This is Hector's story. And this is what heroes look like. 